Well, sometimes something that appears to be what you think it is turns out to be the complete opposite. Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, in our culture today, that probably happens a lot more than it used to. Our initial perceptions turn out to be wildly inaccurate. Well, we could see that in several examples in the book of Joel. The first impression was that Israel's locust invasion that we learned about last week had absolutely nothing to do with their weak spiritual health. That's what the Israelites believed. They thought, oh, it's just an arbitrary act of nature. Well, the prophet Joel corrected that. He says, no, those two facts are very much linked together. The locust invasion is a result of Israel's poor spiritual health. Joel corrected that false understanding. And there are several other false understandings that we'll talk about today in this passage that we'll look at in Joel chapter 2. Even though the locust infestation affected all strata of society, it was an agricultural and economic catastrophe. The response was not a call for better farming techniques or the allocation of subsidies. The locust devastation did hit them where they lived, in their pocketbooks, the economics of their time. The antidote was spiritual, because the problem was really, at its foundation, a spiritual problem. And in Joel chapter 1, verse 14, Joel tells the nation of Israel, this is what you need to do, because your problem is not economic. Your problem is spiritual. Yeah, you're still religious. You're still following through with all the rituals that you need to do. But you don't have any heart in it. You haven't given your hearts to God. You're Israelites. You're his covenant people. That's an unconditional gift that God has given to you. But you don't care. You're apathetic about your spiritual life with God. So the antidote was spiritual. In verse 14, Joel says this is the solution. He says, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land and the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And so the solution is not economic because the main problem is not economic. The solution is spiritual. I want you to fast. I want you to assemble. I want you to listen to your leaders, and I want you to pray. The problem was that all, though Israel was very much religious, their hearts were not with God. So that was a misperception on the part of Israel. That was misperception number one. Why did the locusts come in the first place? And Joel told them in no uncertain terms that you guys really need to respond with spiritual reformation. You need to change your minds. You need to repent of your attitude toward God. The fact that your Israelites has not changed, you still have the covenant God, Yahweh, very much on your side, but he's going to do something in your midst to draw you back. He's going to discipline you. He's going to correct you. He's going to allow things to unfold so that way he gets your attention. Joel wrote about an invasion in chapter 2. Maybe it was a closer look at the locusts because in one measurement, in one level, it seems like he's still talking about what already happened in chapter 1. 
But the invaders were described quite differently. There was an alternate appearance provided by Joel about who the invaders were in Joel chapter 2. It seemed like a second calamity, one that was future tense. The one in chapter 1 had just taken place. And so Joel corrects their misunderstanding that it was just an arbitrary act of nature. It was a seasonal, cyclical thing that the locusts, this would be their day. But no, it was no longer the day of the locusts. It was no longer the day of man. It was truly the day of the Lord. And so there are two invasions. One in chapter 1, and then neatly a second one placed in chapter 2, both being devastating and both being days of the Lord. It is no longer the day of man. It is now the day of the Lord. In chapter 2, starting at verse 1 through 5, Joel describes this secondary invasion. Look what he says here in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Verse 3, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes, before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. So Joel calls for the blowing of the shafar, which is technically a ram's horn, He calls for the blowing of the trumpet, the shafar, by the watchman to sound the alarm because the invading force is just over the horizon. The invading force is near and the invading force will be devastating. It was huge. He writes about its size in the second part of verse 2. Most likely this was the Assyrian army, the largest the world had ever seen up to that point. Um, the Assyrian Empire at its peak in the 8th and 9th century before Christ, in the 8 900s. And it also had the most powerful military in the world up until then. It's ironic that, though, within 200 years of when Joel wrote this, so 100 years more for the second day of the Lord to go down, and then 100 years after that, Assyria would no longer exist as an empire or even as a nation. It will have been swallowed up in 612 B.C. by the Scythians, the Medes, and the Babylonians. But at this point in time, in the 8th and 9th century, before the time of Christ, it was the most powerful empire that had ever existed, and it had the most powerful military as well. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we see the the paths of Israel and Assyria cross, and cross they did. In Second Kings 18, it is written, In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, 
Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened or obeyed. And so God allowed Israel, the northern tribes, if you remember, and Israel had divided between the north Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And so this is in reference to Assyria's gobbling up of the northern tribes of Israel. And they were gobbled up because they continually disobeyed God's commands to them. Were they God's covenant people? Yes, very much so. The Abrahamic covenant gave them an unconditional relationship. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And God took that all on himself. It was unconditional. He created them as a people group. And he was going to give them land, and he gave them the law. Those were all gifts. Those were all examples of God's grace to them. It was all on his shoulders that he provided that identity and that destiny. But then God also provided, of course, the Mosaic Covenant as well, which was a package of God's conditional gifts that if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. I will discipline you because I am your God. So God's relationship toward Israel was both unconditional as well as conditional. That is very similar to his style of relating toward us as New Testament believers. Israel and the church are two different people groups. They are both the people of God, though. But yet he moves toward us in a very similar way. Because he has given us the new covenant, which is both unconditional and conditional. We place our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, and we are justified in that moment of time. And our salvation is secure. And that is all because of the work of Jesus and our subsequent trust in his work. You might say, well, trust is a, is, is a work. Faith is a work. No, it's the, an anti-work. It's the opposite of a work because you're relying and trusting and resting in someone else. But then he also has an unconditional aspect. Our fellowship with God is conditional. So God will discipline us if we go off course. Are we still saved? Yes. But if we're not cooperating with him in our sanctification and discipleship and growth process, he will give us graciously some course corrections. See, So that's his style of relating toward Israel. It's also, in a very similar way, his style of relating toward the church, except with different covenants. And so Joel calls for the blowing of the shofar to alert the people of Israel that the day of the Lord has already happened, but there's another one around the corner, and he's going to discipline you. Because God relates to you, Israel, unconditionally as well as conditionally. 
Assyria would successfully invade Israel and almost to, almost conquer Judah. In fact, they would get to the gates of Jerusalem, but then God graciously saved the southern kingdom of Judah. He saved them through the good leadership of King Hezekiah and repelled Assyria from conquering the southern kingdom. The effect of the army upon Israel was devastation and fire. And these soldiers, he, he writes, that they look like horses. And in fact, locusts look like tiny armored horses if you look at them close up. So there was like an overlap between what happened in chapter 1 with the locusts and what was about to happen with a human army that was aimed against the northern kingdom of Israel. God allows Judah to experience correction from the locusts and then, because they did not repent, he graciously allows them to experience a second set of corrections through the invasion of a foreign, foreign human army. There was a hundred-year interval between the two, but the second devastation was a lot worse than the locust invasion. But the bitter experience of the loss of freedom, the bitter experience of the loss of possessions and one's dignity was thoroughly devastating. It was a major league calamity. And so were the invasions of the locusts? Was the invasion of the foreign human army? Was it punishment or discipline? Well, I would submit to you today that it was discipline and not punishment because they were God's people, but... God was going to graciously give them a badly needed course correction. So God's discipline looks a lot like punishment, but it can have similar short-term effects. They both are painful, but they are quite different between the two. If you remember this chart from a couple weeks ago. That the difference between discipline and punishment is quite different. And so, does God punish believers? Well, he does evaluate and judge us, but he doesn't condemn us. And that's the big difference. There's a couple places in the New Testament that says God punishes the church. punishes the church by disciplining us. He disciplines us through his love. We are his people, and so he disciplines his own people. With punishment, the, the one who benefits is the victim. For discipline, the one who benefits is the perpetrator. And so the story is told of a little boy who had a toy boat, and he went to a pond, and he put the little boat on the pond one day, and it started floating away from him. There was a man on the other side of the little pond, and the guy picked up some rocks, and he started throwing the rocks at the boat. From the little boy's perspective, he was absolutely horrified. That man is trying to sink my boat. But what the man was actually doing is that the rocks were going over the boat and making ripples that finally pushed the boat back to shore into the little boy's hands. The man on the other side of the pond wasn't trying to destroy the boat. He was trying to get the boat back to the boy. Many times when we stray away from God, it appears that he's throwing rocks at us. But he's really using the ripples to bring us back home. 
That's one of the major purposes of trials. Not the only one, by the way, but I think it's the default setting. That if you can't figure out, why is God allowing me to go through this trial? A good, safe interpretation is that God is disciplining me. And let me also remind you that God disciplines us not because of sins that we are doing. Sometimes he corrects our course by allowing trials to come in our pathway, speed bumps, if you will, because of what we're not doing. So discipline can be to course correct us from things that we are doing, but it could also be a course correction to remind us that we should be doing some things that we're currently not doing. So it's in response to sins of omission as well as sins of commission. God sets it straight. He sets it straight. And that is exactly what a really good father does. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 says this. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. And then the writer of Hebrew quotes, Hebrews quotes from the book of Proverbs. And he says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he, ch- he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So if you are disciplined, that's really good news because that means you are a legitimate son or daughter. If you've got a life of cushiness and nothing goes wrong, uh, there's something bigger that's wrong with you. Because you're probably not a son or daughter of God if everything's just always going well. So we have to see his correction as good. We have to submit to his discipline. He goes on, the writer of Hebrews, later into chapter 12, and says that we need to give into it. In other words, we need to cooperate with it. We need to properly interpret it, first of all, in our minds, and not to see it as a big pain in the neck. All these speed bumps in my life, I'm not getting what I want out of life. Well, maybe what you want is not good for you. He treats us like children because, quite frankly, and I'll be the first in line to admit, sometimes I'm like a child still, even though I'm years old, you know. What are you laughing at? Yeah. (laughs) So he disciplines us for our own good. He course corrects us. We have to submit to his discipline willingly, admit it, connect it. Don't be like Israel that disassociated the trial from the reason for the trial. Admit it, connect it, correct it. Show some humility. He does it for our own good. So our attitudes must change regarding trials. We've got to hit the reset button, recalibrate our thinking that they are actually good for us. They are the shot across the bow. Don't take trials as punishment that he's trying to beat you down because we have been freed from God's wrath. His justified anger and judgment was all directed at Jesus and he paid for it all. He doesn't punish us. He technically disciplines us. 
someone wrote this. Out of parental concern and a desire to teach our young son responsibly, we require him, and parents, you might want to take notes here. Kids are going to love me for this one. We require him to phone home when he arrives at his friend's house, which is just a few blocks away. My son began to forget, however, as he grew more confident in his ability to get there without disaster befalling him. The first time he forgot to call, I called to be sure he had arrived. We told him the next time it happened, he would have to come home. Uh Uh-oh. A few days later, however, the telephone again lay silent, and I knew if he was going to learn, he would have to be punished. But I did not want to punish or discipline him. I went to the telephone, regretting that his great time would be spoiled. As I dialed, though, I prayed for wisdom. I thought, treat him like I treat you, the Lord seemed to say. And with that, the telephone rang only one time, and I quickly hung up. A few seconds later, my phone rang, and it was my son. And he said, I'm here, Dad. And I said, what took you so long to call? Oh, we started playing, and I forgot. But, Dad, I heard the phone ring once, and I remembered. How often do we think of God as the one who waits to discipline us when we step out of line or to more inaccurately punish us? I wonder how often he rings just once, hoping that then that will prompt us to call home. He sends reminders when we're just not paying attention. Reinterpret those reminders. He's not trying to beat you down or hurt you or destroy you. He's actually trying to build you up. He's the one throwing the rocks in the pond to get the boat back to us. Then Joel describes the tactics of these awful invaders, who, by the way, were it's pretty clear it was a human army, because in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. So most likely the best interpretation is that chapter 2 involves a human army, most likely the Assyrians, who in a hundred years' time will take the northern kingdom. So the army, it, it seemed to be invincible. They would have certain success. Look what chapter 2 Verses 6 through 11 say, it says, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mightier those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? The army, it seems to be invincible. There is no way possible that it could lose. They had certain success. And do not miss the observation of what this army, in verse 11, is called. Who is its commander? 
Joel says, it is the Lord's army. God, you're using your enemies and our enemies to discipline us? Yes. And it's not the first time he has done that and not the last time either. God is using a foreign enemy as a tool of his discipline. Oh, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about that? Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. (laughs) But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. And when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant, the heart of the king of Assyria, and the boastful look in his eyes. So he will, in the short term, use the most unexpected and most unusual means to perform a course correction on us, And then, in due time, he will also punish his own enemies in one fell swoop. He is a sovereign God who has done no wrong. Upright and just is he. And so, he is sovereign. It is no longer the day of man. It is no longer the day of the locust. It is the day of the Lord. God will use the most unusual means to correct his children and punish his enemies. So recalibrate your thinking, reinterpret the source and the purpose of those speed bumps. We see them as just a pain in the neck, a bother, a problem. God, why can't you make my life, you know, perfect? See, that's, that's the thing about us. Uh, there's, there's some evidence there that you and I are created with expectations and every person on this planet bristles under the weight of the effects of the fall. No one is enjoying it. We're, we were designed to live in a paradise city. But it is anything but that. We're blessed with living in a relatively nice place. But the 8 billion people who inhabit this planet at this time, many of them live under horrendous circumstances. And life's trials and tribulations, death, broken relationships, financial problems, cancer, whatever it might be, it plagues all of us. Say, God, just in the back of my mind there's a, greater expectation that life should not be this way. Where did that come from? It came from the fact that we were not designed to live in this place, but through some really bad decision-making, to put it lightly, from two people who lived in a garden thousands of years ago. This is the result. Romans 8 tells us that when man sinned, All creation, everything, every nook and cranny of the planet groaned under the weight of sin. And life was no longer the same on planet Earth. 
and we are experiencing all of those repercussions ever since then. But then he allows us to experience difficulties, stresses, and trials, and they are there not to beat us down, but they are there to build us up. If we properly interpret them, if we cooperate with them, really good things could happen in our lives. So what has God promised us? Well, he never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us unicorns and rainbows. That's not in the Bible at all. He promised us a paradise, but that's future tense to come full circle from the one we could have had in that garden thousands of years ago. And so then what has God promised us? That's the other tension, because we have the expectations that our culture teaches us. And then we also have a lot of false teachers out there, too. And Dallas-Fort Worth area is kind of the Mecca or the Rome for false teachers of the health and wealth prosperity movement. They say, well, you know, if you just have enough faith, and maybe to make sure you get your health and your wealth, it might be a really good idea. Oh, no, scratch that. It should be a thing that you do. Send in a few dollars, like several thousand, and that will be seed money, and then that will guarantee your health. And that will also spring forth wealth. See, see, that's a lie from the pit. It doesn't work that way. I mean, the Apostle Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. And if anybody should be living in a mansion with a yacht and a a Learjet, it should be the Apostle Paul. But he didn't have any of that. In fact, he was poor. He had to work a second job just to make ends meet as a tent maker. And then he had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to remove it three times. God, please remove this. No. God, please remove this. No. God, please remove this. No. But you know what Paul's attitude was? He says, God allowed me to experience my weaknesses, and I boast of my weaknesses, not my strengths. I boast of my weaknesses, because then the power of God rests upon me. So those Trials, those tribulations, those difficulties, those disappointments are there for a purpose. If I properly interpret them, and that's the encouragement, we've got to allow some of the software to be adjusted. We've got to throw out the bad data and insert the proper software so that way we interpret what God is trying to do in our lives so that way we could properly respond and we could better worship and adore and love Him and be closer to him and abide in him. And so, so many passages of Scripture are misinterpreted. This is on the top ten list. Romans 8.28. I hear this oh, so misinterpreted. So, the, it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Oh, you know what that means? That means that even though I went through this bad time, that means that something really good is going to happen. Is that what that verse is saying? Hmm. No, no, it's not saying that. But that's the way it is interpreted 90% of the time when I see people post this on Facebook or somewhere else. Or in a Bible study, they say, well, this is a guarantee that, that whatever's bad is going to be immediately translated and trans, transformed into something really good. And that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. They say it's a guarantee that negative circumstances will work out. And so we take the good in that verse to mean you will be vindicated. 
you will receive justice. You will receive prosperity. You will receive health. We believe that it will come to a culmination in this life with really good, tangible things, whether it's health or money or some sort of positive outcome. And that's not Paul's talking about at all. In every event, all things, even the groanings God gives to us, God causes ultimate good to happen. It is not a temporal good, but it is something that is eternal. And what Paul is talking about there is our sanctification discipleship process. And that's clearly within the context of what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. What has he talked, what has he spoken about so far in the book of Romans? Well, the first few chapters are all about how sinful we are and how far apart we are from God. And then he transitions and talks about our salvation or our justification. That one-time event when we transfer our trust from something else or nothing else to Jesus and we are born again. And we are saved. We are forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ is put into our asset column. It is applied to us. And so we we see that one-time event taking place, but that's not all God has planned for us because there's another thrust, there's another phase that we will go through. So when we place our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, we are justified before him. That is a moment in time. That is when you're born again. That's when you're saved. It's when you're forgiven. But then the next thing that Paul talks about in the book of Romans after sin and salvation, he talks about sanctification, which is not a one-time event. It is a process. It's a lifelong process. That's what Romans 8.28 is talking about. He tells us that we are predestined in the next verse, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Okay? So we transition from just positional sanctification to being set apart to practical sanctification where life change really takes place inside of you to the point to where, man, I've got a different attitude. I've got a different perspective. I would have responded completely different to that problem five years ago or ten years ago. Now I'm different. And sometimes there's a little dip there, see? But the overall movement is upward, hopefully, for us. See? Justification is based upon the character of Jesus and cannot be reversed. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand and then... The third person of the Godhead is thrown in as well with Ephesians 1.13 that the Holy Spirit seals us. All three members of the Trinity are given to us and are involved in our eternal security. Can we get the chart back up there? Thank you. And so that's what Romans is about. That's the context of Romans 8.28. It is about our salvation, but then of our sin, our salvation, and then our sanctification process. And so 
that process that has been started at your justification, it will not be reversed. It will be guaranteed to continue. And so everything in life is aimed at that direction. Nothing can stop it. There is nothing in the world that is not intended by God to assist us on the earthly pilgrimage to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious end of our journey. See, this helps us. This helps us understand because a lot of us struggle. Can you lose your salvation or not? Can you know you're saved for sure? Remember a number of years ago, Carol and I lived in Flower Mound and we had a wonderful neighbors, really just really sweet people, and they were members of a particular denomination that believed you can lose your salvation. And he, tell, he told me, he said, John, I think that multiple times a day I go in and out of being saved, depending on my behavior. And I said to him, how can you live like that? If you really believe, if I really believe that, I would be a psychological mess. I said, do you really believe that? I said, yeah. Fast forward a few years. I was over in Johnson Road Park near my home, and I guess I was running around pretending to exercise or something like that. I was by the street, walking on the sidewalk, and I saw two young men approach me, both wearing white shirts and black labels on their shirt. I go, I think I know who these guys are. And they're not here to sell me Amway, that's for sure. Now they might have that too, but they were Mormons, okay? Let's cut to the chase. So uh, I, when I first saw them, I had to confess, I started to salivate. You know, I thought, okay, here are two people that want to talk about spiritual things, and I do too, and that's a, you know, Good relationship. So I approached them before they could approach me, you know, and I took the initiative, yeah. And I said to them, you know, hey, you know, um, so are you guys Mormons? Yes, we are. I said, well, tell me how to be saved. Oh, they were like, oh, I'd be delighted to. And so typically dealing with the cults, what they'll usually say, oh, yeah, we believe that's faith in Christ. And then if you press them just a little bit, all of the other reasons start to spill out or all the other means by which we can be saved according to them start spilling out. So they started with faith and then added three or four other things. Okay. So I said to them, so do you believe that you can lose your salvation? And um, they said, yes. Of course, for them, it would be going from the celestial kingdom to the terrestrial kingdom, right? But I don't know if you know this or not, but the only group of people that Mormons believe will actually go to hell are Christian pastors. <laughs> so... So I did not tell them that I was a pastor. <laughs> I didn't want to, like, blow my cover, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I stayed undercover. I know a little surreptitious there, but nonetheless, that's what I did. And I didn't tell them what I did for a living. But uh, I said, so do you believe that you can lose your salvation? I said, yes. They said, yes. So um, they, I said, so, okay, so are you saved right now? Yes, we are. We're going to the celestial kingdom. Okay, pretty girl walks by, you lust after her, and then a car comes off of Johnson Road and plows you both down, you die. Where will you wind up? Well, it's not going to be in the celestial kingdom, that's for sure. So you lost your salvation. Yeah, because we didn't confess our sin. We didn't get resaved. 
So I said to them, I said, do you believe in eternal security? I said, yes. And I said to them, why would I want to give up what I believe to accept what you believe? Why would I want to do that? See, justification is the unconditional aspect of God's style of relationship toward us. It is sealed. It is based upon His character, which is unassailable. But our sanctification is something that we need to cooperate with because we can lose ground there. The justification, I like to say, is our relationship with God. That never changes because of His character and His work. But our sanctification is something that we have to work on. I, I, I love the fact, too, I thought about this. I was like, okay, before we're justified, we're apart from God. We're way apart from Him. And, and uh, nothing we can do will ever please or impress Him. Uh, even our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags to Him. It doesn't do anything to impress Him about us before we're saved. So there's really, we don't really have choice. We really can't glorify and honor Him regardless of how good we are. There's no relationship there. It's like filthy rags. But then, the moment that I am saved and I recognize the fact that the, the empty cross defeated the power of sin and the empty grave defeated the power of death. And I am no longer obligated to sin. For the first time in my existence, I have true choice. So this brief parenthesis between those two vertical lines, that's the time in my existence, the only time when I have true choice as to whether or not I'm going to abide in him, that I'm going to walk with him, that I'm going to be in a relationship with him but still in my fallen state. Because when glorification comes, when I get raptured out of here or I physically die, I will lose choice again because there's no way that I am able to sin. So it is in this brief parenthesis, the period of existence, just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity, that we can choose to follow him or not. We can choose as to whether or not we're going to have fellowship with him, but the fact that we have relationship with him is sealed and firmly planted in concrete. Believers can have confidence because God will work all things in this life, including our correction and our discipline to accomplish the ultimate good for the condition of the believer in this life as well as the next. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you for all you're doing. We pray, Father, that we will choose to course correct. It won't require, it won't require discipline. But I pray, Father, that we'll do it voluntarily. We'll do it the easy way and not the hard way. I pray that we would make the proper adjustments to follow after you, the Son, and the Spirit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond together in song.
For the sake of the name of Jesus who came to seek and save At the cross for our sins just sentence Where painless blood he gave Now by grace all our joy is kindled And fan through faith to flame for the honor and praise unrivaled be fitting Jesus' name. For the sake of the name, for the sake of the name, we will give our offer, Christ acclaimed, for our Lord Jesus' name. Sake of the name of Jesus, we seek to walk in truth. In the truth that His grace has saved us, may our love stand as proof to the world that the one who tethers our hearts is Christ the Son. We strive for the joy of brothers and sisters join as one. would receive the good news through faith forever live. We will lift up our fellow workers to give their lives to go for the sake of the joy of others the gospel seed they sow for the sake Here we have uh, some time set aside on October 1st for baptisms, and this is really the last Sunday that we can take anybody. So if you have not signed up yet, please do that today, or even you could let Travis, Troy, or myself know that you want to be baptized, but it's best to sign up. Then also, men's barbecue is going to be on October 
7th, which is a Saturday from 3 to 6, and this has become a tradition, and it's a really fun time with all the guys, and we get to eat some really good food. And then also, there's a newcomer class scheduled to start. It's a six-week class that starts on October 15th. If you're interested about membership at Bear Creek Bible Church, learn about its doctrine, its ministries, and a little bit about its history as well, please sign up at the information table to let us know. Troy's up. Good morning. One of the new ministries that we're supporting here at Bear Creek is Christ Haven. It's a something like an orphanage. Uh, what it is is uh, are children that have been separated from their birth parents. It does not mean for the rest of their lives, but essentially there's somewhere between 40 and 50 children that need care for. They have 10 homes on site. And through talking to them, one of their greatest needs are pantry items or food items. So over the next month, we'll be collecting uh, these items. You'll find the insert in your bulletin that lists specifically what they need. We'll do the collection in the library. You'll see reusable bags here. You can drop them off in the library, and we'll eventually take them to Christ Haven. But hopefully, if you have a chance, please look at one or two of these items to bring to church over the next month, and we'll be able to bless those young children and families that are caring for them when we deliver those on October 17th. Thank you. Thanks, Troy. Also, a few women's ministry items. The women's retreat is coming up and uh, in the first weekend of November. And so, ladies, you can sign up for that at the women's table in the fellowship area. And then also tomorrow night is the missions potluck, the women's missions potluck. And so you can sign up for that as well. That is tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Information is up there. Also, I want to make mention that every communion Sunday, we ask you to consider giving $7 per family, not per individual, but just per family, uh, in those envelopes that are in your bulletin, the little yellow envelopes, uh, to build houses in Mexico. And so this year, we're building two houses and then also a structure for one of the churches. And so we invite you, or gen- you to be generous with that, uh, and you can put your offerings in the um, boxes attached to the back wall or the side wall, or you can give online. Uh, or mail a check to the church. We appreciate that very much. And go in God's grace and peace. You are dismissed.